I've regularly got to see behind the door at number 10 and it looks pretty lonely and I'm not sure that the things that I value really highly, things like my mental health that we've talked about, things like my marriage, all that sort of stuff, whether these sorts of things can really survive in that sort of um, crucible. My name is Johnny Ball and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. First up for the second season of Veterans in Politics is Ruth Davidson, MSP. Our host Johnny has always lived by the mantra of don't meet your heroes. Well, unless her name is Ruth Davidson, of course. Johnny and Ruth chatted about their shared connection of reserve service, Scottish independence and whether or not she will ever be leader of the UK Conservatives. It's time for you to meet our guest. Um, anyway, Ruth, thank you so much for coming on today. And I'm enormously excited about having a conversation with you. Um, you've been certainly one of those people that I've for a long time wanted to connect to. And it was delightful that we were able to connect uh, at that event on on the mental health um, not that long ago. So thank you very much. How are you today anyway? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, it's great to, to catch up again. And, and you know, I thought it was a, a really good event for those who aren't across it. We we did a, a kind of, for one of the really big employers in London, we did a, a panel talking about why it's important to have those conversations about mental health, why it's important for employers to to recognise it within the workplace, the, the need for good mental health, to not just have presenteeism at work, to make sure that there's areas for people to talk about. And and I think that the, the veteran kind of perspective on that was, was really interesting and really important. Yeah, it was certainly an honour for me to be able to sort of be the talking head for the veterans and armed forces community that day and for us to connect. And I was really pleased that when I sent you that email for us to have a catch up afterwards, how you um, had said yes, uh, which has led on to today's conversation, which is amazing because you're certainly someone as a self-confessed political geek, someone <laughs> I've admired from, from afar um, and seeing your career and seeing the impact that you've made. And I think for me, I was having a chat with my mum actually about you and my mum is completely not into politics at all, but she knew you. And for me, that kind of speaks volumes in how you're able to cut through. But I mean, why on earth did you get involved in politics in the first place? Um, frustration, mostly, actually. So I'd been a journalist for 10 years, uh, working first in kind of papers and then in, in broadcast. And I was working at the BBC and, and loved it. You know, and, it, and it's such an, a, a kind of uh, honour of a, of a job. And, you know, I never uh, didn't like the privilege of it, the ability to kind of grab politicians by the lapels and ask them all the questions that the people at home wanted answered. Um, but, but one thing that kind of got frustrating was that my job was to tell people what was going on in Scotland, but it, it wasn't to change things. Um, 
In fact, because I worked for the BBC, it was specifically not to insert yourself in the story. The job was was to be an honest narrator. It wasn't to be an actor or an agent of change. And, you know, I was kind of thinking that, well, well, I, I can change things. I, you know, there's the stuff I want to do that I want to go further than just talk about it. And um, and that led me to kind of put my hand up and quit a, a very good job with a good pension that my mother was appalled about. Uh, to try and stand as a, a Tory in Glasgow uh, in sort of 2008, 9, 10, 11. And, and, you know, these were not high watermarks for the Tories in Scotland, particularly in Glasgow and specifically. So it was a bit of a risk. But um, I just I just wanted to do something. I wanted to, you know, make changes. And that's why I, I got involved. It's funny you should mention wanting to do something. A previous guest of ours, Sir Julian Brazier, a piece of advice that he offered on our podcast was, you know, for people to get into politics, to not to be something, but to do something. And for you to say that again, back to me, it speaks volumes. Well, yeah, and I think that's what it's all about. I mean, it doesn't matter what colour of rosette you wear. All political parties are looking for people who want to get stuff done. And it doesn't matter what age you're at, what stage in your career you're at, whether you're sort of male or female, whether you've got a disability, whether you come from an ethnic minority, you know, none of that. Uh, is stuff that is, um, you know, gets in the way or anything like that. What everybody is looking for is people that are already involved and committed to the local community. And whether that's through uh, a network at work, whether that's through, you know, their church or their, you know, temple or uh, whether that, or their mosque, whether that's through, uh, you know, something that they do with a local charity, whether that's getting involved in their, their kids' school. You know, we want people that give of themselves because that's actually what it should be about. Now, all of the stuff that goes along with politics, all of the being shouted at on television stuff, you know, that that's great. And it is part of the job and you've got to be prepared for that. And you've, you know, uh, and political parties will help you um, get the skills and the preparation for that. But that's such a small part of the job. You know, at its base, politics is about representing large groups of people and making decisions on all of our behalfs. That's what representative democracy is. And the sort of people that you need, the sort of people that succeed, that go through multiple campaigns, not getting elected and stick with it and then do get elected, are, are the people that are willing to put in the graft. And it's, it's you know, all parties want grafters. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you anymore, having worked behind the scenes of politics for mm. many years now. In fact, we sounds like we got involved around about the same time in the late noughties, I think it was, that I got first got involved with well, mid, I think 2006, 2007, when I first started to engage for the very first time. But another thing that we got in common, actually, is our military links. And we both served in uh, what was the Territorial Army and now the Army mm-hmm. Reserve. Um, so tell us a bit, little bit more about your service links. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I feel like such a fraud when I talk about this because uh, I, I was absolutely army barmy and I joined uh, my local regiment, local to, to where I was working at the time in Glasgow, which was 32 Signals. Uh, so I was a scaly back um, and uh, they broke me. So I was doing my uh, officer training and I was down at Westbury. And I, I did the, I was down in February and you know, the, I, I think they used to call it the physical courage test. I don't know if they still do, but that bit where you've got to kind of run up and like jump through a window frame and land on the other side, kind of head first and all that sort of thing. Uh, and they were looking for somebody to go first and, you know, Bold Davidson sticks the hand up, grand, not realising that it had snowed overnight and nobody had broken up the sand pit on the other side, completely over rotated, uh, landed on the top of my, uh, top of my spine uh, and broke my back. Um, and, uh, ended up in Salisbury General Hospital for quite some time before having to try and get a, a flight home. Uh, so, so yeah, I um, went back to uh, went back to um, 
the army as, as soon as I could after that. Um, ended up falling off the Pentlands in a night exercise, was taken aside by my uh, my OC uh, and told that I was an insurance risk to the British Army. So that was my inglorious couple of years uh, in the Territorial Army, was serving as a signaller, uh, being recruited for officer training and selection, and, and, and then breaking myself pretty spectacularly. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, you know, I don't have a chest full of campaign medals and I'm not, I've never pretended that I do. <laughs> I I I think well thanks for sharing I mean the fact that you through that pretty traumatic time as well from those injuries it must have it must have been quite frustrating as well because like me army barmy watching soldier soldier as a kid the rest of it and for those that kind of I mean we're sort of giving about it now but it must have been quite disappointing as well to oh I was raging and also I was furious with my OC as well because he was like you know you're an insurance I was like me if i'd wanted to sue the army i could have done it by now and i didn't and i didn't on purpose like because they, they didn't have a medic on base they made me walk to the ambulance before i was like immobilized for several days i mean it was like i i didn't have the the, the best immediate first aid response i think to breaking my back is fair to say but i was just like don't you dare tell me what i can and can't do but you know there's um there's rules and there's rules so so yeah but to be fair, they haven't held a grudge because they did invite me back to be their honorary colonel a couple of years ago. So, so I'm cur- I'm currently doing that. So somewhere it's been lost in the mists of time that that you know I could get them into trouble. So how's it been back in uniform? Yeah, well, it's it's been a funny old year. I mean, you know, it's been very hard for everybody in terms of of you know training nights not happening in the way that they used to and all that sort of thing. So I'm really hopeful that this year it can kind of step back up in the physical sense again because the physicality of what we do and what the armed forces does is such an integral part of it. Yes, of course, there's always room for for training and for development and for professional development, particularly in one of the, the kind of trade regiments, so like signals. Um but um but you need to get you need to get out, you need to be physically meeting people. You need to, you know, be getting sort of eyes on, hands on with all your, you know, the the rest of uh, your team and and it's just been really difficult I think for everybody and I, I don't think it's been confined to to just our regiment I think it's been lots of regiments yeah absolutely I deliver phase two training um within the army reserves and we've really adapted I mean literally I've been sat in this very room with um uniform from the waist <laughs> up <laughs> and cookie monster <laughs> pajamas training. on the bottom with some fluffy baffies is that what you're telling me <laughs> um yeah nice hot chocolate on the side but delivering training and the adaptability of our people has been unbelievable the enthusiasm and keenness of our recruits to attend those training sessions and get through the training no matter what despite everything that's happening in our personal lives and also you know the the barriers that around those kind of training but you know you need you need that contact when delivering these kind of well, the thing is adapt and overcome you know it's not a soundbite it's not a phrase it, it is something that the, the the british armed forces are exceptionally good at and they will think their way you know around over under or through a problem uh, and they they do it time and time again and and i've been involved you know in a, in a couple over the last year of, of kind of big zoom calls with people that are providing leadership or, or women in the forces or, or some of the other things that I kind of do. And, you know, the enthusiasm to get stuff done to make sure that they're still achieving, that they're, you know, they're getting wins on the board is, is there and it's there in Legion. And and also the adaptability of our armed forces, because we're talking about, um, you and I are talking about um, people that are kind of not doing as much as they would ordinarily do right now. But, you know, there, there are other people in uniforms that have been going 
miles above and beyond that have been, you know, administering COVID tests that have been doing, you know, that have been inserted into government as logistical planners or into health boards that have been working in terms of the vaccination rollout that have been doing all this kind of stuff. So in terms of the amount of civil contingency work that has gone on from the armed forces this year, I mean, it's been phenomenal. Yeah, I think so. I was chatting to the NHS employers last week and they were talking about the high influx of recruitment from the armed forces that they've benefited from over the last couple of years. And it's phenomenal numbers that they've managed to achieve. But then we were talking about the reservist medics who you know, have literally gone from the back of running a, a, a Mert team on the back of a Chinook in Afghanistan to now on the front line of, of COVID-19. So the adaptability of our people and those leadership skills and the human skills they picked up along the way are just second to none. And clearly you've picked up a few of those skills um, from uh, from your military life, both now as an honorary colonel. Of a, that was of a, slick, Johnny. Like It's like you've been doing radio forever. That link there was just, you know, spot on. I do try. But um, in, terms of, in terms of leadership, it's probably going to be really irritate me now, the question that you'll probably ask all the time. Obviously, you were leader of the Scottish Conservative Party. But not only that, um, and from my own, uh, when I was working in a political party, there was all those, the talk around Ruth Davidson and is she going to be leader of the national UK um, Conservative Party? Why do you think people have always cited you as a future leader of the Conservative Party in the UK? I've no idea. And I've been pretty clear down down the line that, you know, I, actually, it's a pretty tough job and not one that I have ever had the kind of um, um, ambition to do, mostly because I've been really lucky in that I've regularly got to see behind the door at number 10. And it looks pretty lonely. And I'm not sure that the things that I value really highly, things like my mental health that we've talked about, things like my marriage, all that sort of stuff, whether these sorts of things can really survive in that sort of um, crucible. Yeah. And, you know, now I've got a young son, uh, I've got a toddler, um, you know, your priorities do change when you have kids. And you talked about being kind of the the leader of the Scottish Conservatives and and the kind of leadership skills from the army that I brought into that. And it's true, like uh, the way things happened in Scotland at the time that I I got elected, I literally got elected to the Scottish Parliament um, on the you know, our, our election was on the Thursday, our count was on the Friday. Uh, I was into Parliament the next week. And on the day that I arrived in Parliament, my leader resigned. That's uh, like worst Craig David song. <laughs> yeah, really. And uh, uh, we did have a very long leadership election. I mean, it, it took, we had sort of four or five months by the time we'd kind of opened nominations, all that sort of stuff. But, you, you know, I was the leader of the party within six months from getting elected for the very first time. I mean, it really was kind of you know private on monday and brigadier by friday type stuff and and the only sort of thing that i could adapt and and use the only kind of toolkit in my locker was my officer training and that was all i had i I hadn't had any leadership training as a as a journalist you know i was a a reporter and a a producer and uh and um a presenter but i I hadn't managed staff i hadn't managed an organization i I didn't have that kind of skill set um apart from what i'd learned through the ta and and doing do my officer training for for sandhurst and 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 that's what you know you use what you have and that's what i took into it and if and if i hadn't done the ta there's no way that i would have survived the first couple of years of my leadership not a chance um i needed those skills and and i've completely adapted them because you know the, the the skills work, but but actually the way in which you administer them. A political organisation is a voluntary organisation. You know, it's it's not one that has a clear hierarchy. It's not one wherein even as the leader, 
you're in charge of all staff members that work directly to their MSP or their MP, etc. You can't hire or fire MPs uh, because they're elected at the ballot box. You know, you've got all of that sort of stuff. So it, it, you really have to bring people with you which is a different skill from command and control. Um, so, But the skills that you learn in the army absolutely help 100%. And, and that's why, actually, I think political parties have been slow off the mark in terms of physically going out and recruiting from these organisations, from you know Army, Navy, Air Force, because um, you know certainly looking at the House of Commons, the people that have come in, I mean, it's, it's quality candidates and you can see the skill sets that they, they bring and, and that are needed in politics. Absolutely. And there are 50 MPs within Parliament that have a military background. And I've number crunched those as the political geek and analyst that I am. But um, yeah, and, you- and you value at least 12 of those 50. <laughs> well, they all come on the podcast, don't they? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is exactly what we're trying to achieve with this podcast and with the wider <laughs> campaign force is really to try and tap into those 15,000 that leave the armed forces every year because they can make our politics a better place. And your example will be part of that in order to inspire someone listening today, thinking, do you know what? That's an interesting journey with a, a military background. Um, that's something I can uh, attain to, whether it be in local government, MSP or MP. Yeah, exactly. Or AM in Wales or, you know, um, MLA over in Northern Ireland. And, and you know, you've got, um, there's at least one person that I know uh, currently in the Northern Irish Assembly who's, who's come up to do that route as well. I mean, the one caveat I would give, you know, I, I make a joke about how quickly I became leader after I got elected, but I'd been through a couple of elections before I got elected first. I mean, it, w- it was a couple of years to even kind of get to that point. So I would say to people when they're leaving the armed forces, don't expect that your next job will be as an elected person. It, it probably won't be. You will have to do a job while you take on that campaigning on top of that as well, because that's kind of the route that most people come up, certainly in most parties. And, and that's fine, though, because you learn those skills while, while you're doing other things. And it shows that you're able to turn your hand to lots of stuff. And it, it also allows you to suck it and see, because, uh, you know, being an elected politician is different from other jobs. The scrutiny is different. The abuse you get is different. Um, you, you do need to know whether it's for you or not. The campaigning, I love campaigning. It's my favourite part of the job. Elections are my favourite bit, which is just as well because we have so them in many, many of them in Scotland. But they're not for everyone. So, you know, it's, it's, it's good to be able to, you know, try before you buy in that sense. Yeah, I think so. And uh, Johnny Mercer, when he was on the uh, episode one, or the podcast, he said that it's a bit like any organisation. You got to do the the crap jobs first. Yeah, you do. You know, you have to. You got to clean the latrines. <laughs> got to sweep the hangers and all that good stuff, like we're used to in the military. But I mean, you must have yeah. only. You got to do guard duty through the night. You know, on a Friday night when everyone else is off base. Like you got to do it. Exactly. And and in your role, you must have come across all different styles of leadership from all the different organisations you meet. Um, from you know. Yeah, both the screamers and the empathetic ones and the ones that, you know, will have a four hour committee meeting because they can't take a decision. Yeah, I've met them all, all of them. But do you, do you think um, do you think this period of our lives has been a good moment for leadership? Um, and can you give any good examples that you've seen during this crisis? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, um, the one that I would come back to actually is a kind of international example. I, I think the way in which 
Bill Gates has pulled both the philanthropic community together and the scientific community together to help with the, the vaccine funding and research to make sure that barriers that usually exist are just swept away has been phenomenal um, and will benefit everyone. And I think if you're looking particularly at that side of things, you, you know, the way in which um, Astra, sorry, AstraZeneca and, and Oxford University got together to collaborate for their vaccine done setting out right at the beginning that it was going to be not for profit for uh for poor countries um to make sure that a global pandemic has a global cure uh and that you're not disadvantaged depending on where you live i think is so important um so i, I think you've seen some really really top-notch leadership in these kind of ways definitely i, I think yeah, hey globalism is alive and well eh? if we get seeing all these organizations coming together uh to co- collaborate on these things yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's funny. COVID's been really interesting in that regard, in that, it, you know, it's something that has affected all around the world. It didn't start here. You know, it started in China. It's in, you know, however many hundred countries around the world. Um, but one of the significant responses that people have had have been to shut down areas, local authority areas, have travel bans, have flight bans, all that sort of stuff, to kind of have a, a, a kind of local response to it. But to also then try and scale up kind of the the global vaccine, the global cure. So, so I think this is one of the ones where you know three four years from now we'll still be picking through all the different threads of this, different responses, how it worked, what countries did what, who did stuff well, who did stuff that that didn't work, and also because we learned on the job, like we didn't know what this virus was. There are some things that we were doing back in February that we're not doing now and stuff that we're doing now that we weren't doing back in February. And it's only because our knowledge gap is, you know, our, our knowledge gap has decreased. It's because we've learned along the way. And, um, you know, all of this is going to come out in the wash, um, but it probably won't be for some time. We'll still be talking about this three, four years from now easily. Yeah, I agree. Um, and you mentioned in that about the connectivity from local to international almost. Yeah. I think it's actually been quite a good moment for local government uh, because they've been, by and large been the deliverer of a lot of the community response, the coordination through resilience forums, et cetera. Um, but, and, devolved and, 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 you know, in, in all of my time in politics, the level of government that affects everybody day to day most often is local government without a shadow of a doubt. And you look at the way in which, you speak to bus companies that make sure that they've got routes on to get essential workers to hospitals during this um, pandemic. You look at the way in which learning hubs have opened up for key workers' children. You look at the way in which um, enforcement has come in for some of the regulations for shutting businesses and restaurants, bars and all that sort of stuff. That's all local government. All of that is local government. And, you know, it's, um, it's often the kind of unsexy part of politics. People think that being a councillor is in some way a lesser gig because it's um, because it's not always full time, because it's not paid the same way as an MP is paid. But in terms of the efficacy that you can have, the impact that you can have on a community, I mean, it's right up there. 100%. And I probably spend every day converting people from wanting to be MPs to becoming councillors um, because I'm so passionate about local government. And that is where I think that the armed forces community veterans, reservists, spouses, cadet force, adult volunteers, by doing that almost another part-time job, they can have such an impact on their communities. And I think in devolved government too, we've seen, I think, an increased understanding, um, good bits and bad bits of devolved government with, throughout this crisis. 
Well, yeah, because it's been health. I mean, the way in which it's worked, um, the health service is wholly devolved in Scotland, wholly devolved in Northern Ireland. Um, and a lot of the ancillaries that go around that are also devolved. I mean, if this had been a transportation crisis or it had been, you know, some other thing that, you know, an, an, over, an incident overseas where you're trying to repatriate Brits or something like that, then you would have seen a much different way of working. But But things like keeping people in jobs, the furlough scheme, the self-employed scheme, you know, over a million Scots have been, you know, supported by the UK work government directly as in, you know, money into your pocket right now. Let's keep you afloat till we can get past all of this. So you you see in, in real time sort of the way the, the UK government works, the way the Scottish government works, and, and like you say, the way local authorities work. So you see the different stratas of government uh, and how they work together and, and what their, their areas of expertise are and their areas of delivery are. Yeah, I think the understanding from sort of Joe Public has increased throughout this and, and they hopefully will see that return in the ballot box with people participating a lot more with local government, devolved government. Um, but of course, the other thing it has d- done as well, Ruth, is the um, the Scottish uh, referend- independence referendum uh, debate has definitely ramped up in the perception in the media. It's never gone away. I mean, the thing is, England's noticed, but it's never been away in Scotland. Yeah. Not since the referendum in 2014. I mean, it's it's always been there. And, you know, we have an, a nationalist government who wants to pursue independence for Scotland and pulls every lever that it has to get it because it's their stated aim and it has been for more than 90 years. So, you know, COVID's one reason, Brexit's another reason. But, you know, they were also advocating for independence when the NHS was being set up 70 years ago and they're advocating for independence all the way through the Second World War when, you know, Scots, English, Northern Irish and Welsh were all fighting together. So, you know, the next thing that comes along, they'll say that's a reason for independence as well i mean you know i'm i'm not being cynical about it but you know we have seen 90 years of whatever the political issue of the moment is the scottish national party says that's a reason for independence it's, it's what they do and you know they don't try and hide it it's you know clause one of their their party's uh you know contracts so so what are you going to do business as usual for the smp but perhaps the rest of the uk have just sort of woken up a little bit more and paid attention to it well you say the rest of the uk but actually what you mean is england because england doesn't have an english parliament because you know it uses the uk parliament as the delivery mechanism for england so the the health minister is the health minister for england wales has a health minister scotland has a health minister northern ireland has a health minister um in terms of education okay england and wales are are, are very close but scotland has had its own education system completely um all through the 300 years of union and uh, northern ireland has a completely separate education system you, you know these things are different anyway and i think it's just people in england have realized that something else exists elsewhere. And I think that that has left an appetite for some people um, to say, well, well, why isn't England getting the same level of kind of autonomy uh, in some areas? And I think that there are questions there that probably need explored about what the makeup of the United Kingdom is, the fact that um, it's not, uh, you know, and, and the way in which devolution has happened is that it's not happened in a holistic sense. It's happened in a kind of bilateral sense. So there's been a couple of upgrades to the Scotland Act down the years, which was, you know, Edinburgh and London, you know, legislating for things to change. There have been an up, a very recent upgrade in Wales for things to change. We've seen the re-establishment of the Parliament in Northern Ireland, and that's all happened sort of bilaterally with Westminster. But in terms of kind of four nations sitting together, working together in the way in which this works, 
that's the bit that's been kind of missing, I think. And I think there needs to be more kind of partnership working across all the devolved administrations and with the UK government. Definitely. I think an opportunity. I mean, I went to university in Wales, served in Northern Ireland, and obviously have a huge, and I've got Scottish uh, relations. And you've got a great Scottish accent right there. I can hear it. There you go, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I take a, a, a interest in these things. You've got a Scottish brand of whiskey. Is that what you're going to tell me? No. <laughs> but no, that's as far as my, a couple of Scottish answers, as far as my links to Scotland. I will take it. We'll take it. That's it. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think um, it really has focused the mind on on everyday folk in uh, interest in local government devolved government and made it a little bit more relevant but i think with that if we're going to see more participation and the realization that this stuff is important for local people where that local delivery happens we're going to need a better class of politician because it can't just be all about you know ruth davidson's of this world and and, and in, as msps we're going to need councillors at a lower level um, to be able to have a really good impact. And then we need to raise the bar there. And indeed, a book was written by Isabel Hardman on you know, why we get the wrong politicians. I mean, do you think that's a fair assessment that we have got the wrong p- politician? Uh, and if so, or if not, w- what does the right politician look like? Well, I think in any organisation, so you look, there's 650 MPs in the House of Commons, there's you know 129 MSPs in Holyrood, there's I think it's 60 in, in, in Cardiff Bay. Um, to my eternal shame, I, I actually don't know how many DLAs there are in Stormont. Um, you know, you'll have ones that are, you know, flyers. You'll have ones that are indifferent. You'll have ones that are, um, you know, pretty good workhorses behind the scenes, but are never going to be, you know, stars and, and have no wish to be. Um, and you'll get some that are, are pretty rum. Um, but I have to say in, in, you know, all of my time in politics, so that's 10 years elected and a couple of years before that, um, as an activist and another 10 years before that as a, as a political watcher, honestly, most people are in politics for the right reasons. Genuinely they are. And it doesn't matter what color or ribbon you wear. Um, most people want to change things for the better. Now they have different ideas of how to change them. They've got different things that they want to see changed, but most people are in it because they want to change things for the better. And I, and I think particularly these days when you get just so much abuse now, um, so much more than when I even started 10 years ago. Um, it, it has to be people that have that drive that want to do things that come forward because otherwise, why would you put up with it? Oh, exactly. Why would you? And particularly when you talk about having you know, a family and, and things like that, there are certainly increased reasons for people not to do it. And obviously I'm, I'm obsessed with encouraging people to do it. And yeah. there are 20,000 local government representatives across the UK. So, and elections every year. So loads of opportunity for the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. And I guess my ask of you, if mm. if our, particularly our armed forces community that listens to this podcast, what would be a bit of advice that you might impart upon them if they were just scratching around and just starting to think and having an itch? Do it. Don't even think, do it. Absolutely put yourself forwards. You know, go on, throw yourself in it 100% and make sure you bring 100% of you to the role. Don't try and dress yourself up as what you think a politician is because they're not. We're all different. We all come from a different background. We all come from, we've all had different experiences and we've all got different skills. Like bring yourself to the role because that's what people want. That's what parties will want. That's what communities will want. They'll want the real authentic you. So make sure that you 
you know, bring your whole self to the role and that you're standing up and championing the things that you care about. And if and if you care about it and if it matters to you, if it matters to your family, then it'll matter to other people's families too. There you go. You've heard it here first. Just do it. Uh, if only we could... get it done. Get it smashed. If only I could trademark that uh, that slogan. Just do. <laughs> yeah, am I going to get sued by the Knight Corporation now? <laughs> I, I, I would say we, with a caveat, we have stand up and serve again is our way of saying just do it. Uh, but certainly, <laughs> um, I think we'll leave it there. Ruth, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fun and brilliant. Brilliant, Johnny. Uh, and thank you so much for all those pieces of advice. All right, catch you later. Cheers, night. Bye bye. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.